0: Oh!
1: to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 15, as we follow along with today's lesson.
2: And so Jesus now says, if your brother shall trespass against thee. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained a brother. This is really a form of discipline within the church that Jesus is setting forth, though the church at this point doesn't yet exist This is the way relationships are maintained. If you're offended because of a brother, because of his actions, because of his deeds, because of something perhaps that he has said, best that you go alone to him, sit down with him and talk it out with him. Don't go around broadcasting it. Do you know what he did? I can't believe it. I saw him myself. I know, you know. And and going around broadcasting it to everybody and trying to get everybody on your side, you know. First of all, go to the brother. Deal with him. If he hears you, good. You've gained a friend. You can just bury it right there. If he doesn't hear you, then take one or two more with you. Take someone else along that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. In other words, (laughs) there are some people that um, I don't like to talk to unless I have some others with me. So if you come to see me and I invite Romaine into the office with us, (laughs) you'll know that you're one of them. (laughs) You see, a lot of times you say things to people and whether or not it is deliberate, I don't know, but they go out and they distort what has been said. They totally twist it or they even add things that weren't said but attribute you as having said them. And when I find such individuals that word comes back to me that I was supposed to have said, you know, they said that I said, and, and it, it's just off-the-wall kind of stuff, then I get leery of even talking to those people without witnesses. And quite often when you have an offensive brother, when you go to them, quite often... They rebel against what you say. They're not going to always, if they listen, if they hearken, great, you've gained a friend. If they don't, then don't jeopardize yourself by going alone the next time. Go back again with some witnesses that every word might be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. They can say, oh, Chuck didn't say that. And you've got backup. You see, otherwise, you've just got them saying, well, Chuck said that, and I said, no, I didn't say That's ridiculous. Oh, but Chuck said that. No, no, I didn't. And, and you've got their word against yours. Now you've got, Romaine can say, well, I was there the whole while, and he didn't say that kind of junk, you know. <laughs> and you're protected. Now let me say that, There are times when Romaine needs to be in, not because of this, but just uh, so don't get offended if you come and see me and I have Romaine there too. I mean, that's, that's not always the case, you see. Now, if he neglects to hear them, the two or three that have gone to him, then tell it to the church. Then they should be exposed before the church. And if they refuse to hear the church, then let them be to you as heathen or publicans. They're not really a part of the fellowship of God's people. Now, Jesus again changes the subject, and he talks about binding on earth and loosing on earth. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The heavenly powers that have been vested in God's people by God. Powers over the powers of darkness so that we as children of God have the authority to bind evil spirits, tormenting spirits. And whatsoever we bind on earth will be verified By heaven. The question often arises if man is a free moral agent, God has given to him that capacity of choice and does not violate that capacity of choice, then how can we pray that an unsaved person would be saved? Because they have the power of choice. And God won't violate that capacity of choice that he's given to them. And therefore, how can I really pray for them? Because if they don't choose to receive Christ, they they can't be saved, and God's not going to force them to choose. You need to take it one step further, and you need to ask, why haven't they received Jesus Christ and his forgiveness for their sins? And the answer is, according to the Scriptures, the God of this world has blinded their eyes so that they cannot see. They are being held as captives by Satan. He has distorted their perception of spiritual things, He has lied to them about God, about Christianity. They are very prejudiced against spiritual things because of the work of Satan blinding their eyes to God's truth. So, though I cannot say God saved them, that is, against their will, Recognizing why they are in darkness and why they have not received is because they're blind to the truth. You see, if you can once see the truth of Jesus Christ and what God has offered to us as far as the forgiveness of our sins, the blotting out of our past, the hope of eternal life with Him, And the fact that God only calls you to love, to forgive, to live a good life, a holy life, a righteous life. Now, these things are not odious at all, these are idealistic. And God has called you to this ideal of purity. Righteousness, goodness, love. Marvelous characteristics. But Satan has so distorted the minds of people that they do not and cannot see the truth. So, by prayer, I combined this power of Satan that is, blinding them and keeping them in darkness. And whatever I bind on earth will be bound in heaven. As I bind the the powers of darkness that are blinding their eyes, then God binds these powers of darkness. You see, if anybody could ever just see the truth, if they just could see it without this heavy prejudice of Satan clouding the issues, of course they would receive Jesus Christ. I mean, you'd have to be a fool to reject the offers that God has made to us if a person only saw the truth. But the problem is they can't because of Satan's blinding influence. So I have the power to bind, and Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And I also have the power of just sort of loosing the Spirit of God to work in their hearts and lives and whatever I loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Great, great powers that God has given to us as his children to exercise these powers in the redemption of the lost. And then Jesus said, again I say to you, another thought, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, It shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. That's beautiful, isn't it? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loosed. And if just two of you will agree, touching anything, that you will have what you ask. It'll be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You see, I can say to you tonight, Jesus is here. He's here tonight. He's here in the midst of us. He's here to minister to you and to your needs. Now, our problem is, We can't see him. And thus, because we can't see him, then it's hard for us to realize that he is here. If he should suddenly materialize and we could actually see him, if you could see him just standing here beside me, What do you think your response would be? If you have a physical malady here tonight, I think that you would be wanting to get close to touch the hem of his garment. We all have that confidence that if he was just here, he could take care of any problem that we possess. Physical, whatever, you know, if we just if we could just see him. But Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who see and believe, but more blessed are those who believe without seeing. And the Lord wants you to have the greater blessing. He just says, I'm there in the midst. And so I can assure you that Jesus is here tonight to meet your needs to minister to you. Because he said, I didn't come to be ministered to, I came to minister. And his being here tonight isn't really for the purpose that we should minister to him. He desires to minister to us. Now Peter changes the subject completely. (laughs) Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often... Shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? And as I mentioned this morning, I think that Peter was stretching it. Even in his thinking of his own ability, I think he was trying to make points with the Lord. You see, they were arguing who was going to be the greatest, and they even question, "Lord, who's going to be the greatest?" And so Peter is trying to get in on this now. And, well, Lord, uh, um, how often uh, should I forgive a, a fellow the same seven times, Lord? You know, see how I'm growing. I'm getting the message. I, when you set up the king, remember, Lord, I can do it seven times. You know, maybe I mean, better, under proper circumstances and all. And Jesus said, no, Peter, not seven times, but until 70 times seven. Four hundred and ninety? I'm sure that the Lord figured you'd lose count before you got that far. Wouldn't that be horrible? <laughs> 400 and how many? I don't want to slug this guy. I mean, where are we? <laughs> we realize that forgiveness isn't mathematics. It's a spirit that God wants us to possess. A Christ-like spirit who, when they were crucifying him, prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He said, when you stand praying Forgive. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which took an account of his servants. And when they had begun to reckon in the accounting, there was brought to him one which owed him ten thousand talents. And I told you this morning that was fifteen million dollars. Well, you see, I was in Bible college back in nineteen 19- 45 and at that time 10,000 talents of silver would have been worth about 15 million dollars however with inflation and all some of your new bibles read about 52 million dollars good amount however you look at it big amount in 1945 at 15 and <laughs> a big amount in 1990 for at uh, $52 million. The, the price of silver, of course, you know, has gone up. Can you imagine owing someone that much money? But for as much as he did not have the money to pay, his Lord commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in order that the payment might be made. And the servant therefore fell down and worshiped him and said, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and he loosed him and forgave him the debt. He had been bound. He was headed for jail, headed to be sold actually on auction as a slave. Money applied to the debt. But they loosed him and he forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence. Now, back in my Bible college days, that was $15, and now it's estimated to be about 42 And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat and said, Pay me what you owe. What a graphic picture this is, a picture of us. Jesus is seeking to remind us of the great debt that we owed, that God forgave. All of your sin has been forgiven. Every offense, every transgression, Everything. God's forgiveness is complete. And yet, we are guilty of holding these little offenses against one another. Angry, bitter, because of what someone said, what someone did. And we get so upset. And we hang on to these things. We let this just sort of eat us up. About three years ago, my wife and I met a man over in Austria who 25 years ago, his wife ran off with an evangelist. 25 years ago. And this man was still so bitter over that which happened 25 years ago. so bitter, so angry, that all he could talk about that whole evening was this horrible thing that happened to him 25 years ago, and how angry he was with his wife and how angry he was with all ministers. and I mean, just it was just pouring out of every pore of his body, the bitterness, the angerness that he'd been holding for 25 years. Man, let it go. (laughs) Now, you see, all of this bitterness and anger isn't hurting his wife and that evangelist at all. They're probably having a lark someplace. (laughs) But this guy's just as bitter, and it's eating him up. You see, these things hurt you more than they hurt the persons that it is directed towards. Now, that is a major offense, to be sure. Many of the offenses that we have are very minor. Just someone said something, well, or we heard that they said it. And that's enough for us. We knew that they were rotten rats anyhow, you know. (laughs) What do you expect out of someone like that, you know? And and we're so unwilling to forgive these slight offenses. And, And Jesus is drawing the picture here. God has forgiven you a debt of 52 million bucks. And here you're ready to destroy a brother because of $44 debt? The idea is having been given so much really puts me under the obligation to forgive. I have received forgiveness, and therefore it's obligatory that I forgive. And so the fellow servant, laid his hands, took him by the throat, said, Pay me what you owe. And and the servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, I will pay thee all. He said the exact same words, the same petition. And he would not but cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Now when the other fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and they came and told their lord what was done and then his lord after that he had called him said unto him oh you wicked servant i forgave you all that debt because you desired me you asked me should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant even as i have pity on you be ye kind one to another tender hearted forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. That's what the Lord is asking. You've been God has forgiven you. Be kind one to another. God's been kind to you. Be tender-hearted. God's been tender-hearted. Forgiving, God forgave. And so we're asked to have these God-like qualities and characteristics. And the Lord was angry and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him because, and so likewise, shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. As we said this morning, forgiveness is not an option. It's not even a suggestion by Jesus. It is a command. And he is telling you that your heavenly Father will do the same to you. And of course, it's very easy in the parable to see that the king or the Lord is God. And it's very easy to see that I'm the servant that had this huge debt and I was forgiven. And it's very easy to get the point that I must forgive because I have been forgiven. What a horrible thing unforgiveness is. How it eats away and destroys you. How it can cause all kinds of mental aberrations. Mental turmoil. How important that we have a forgiving spirit. To walk away from a situation and to be able to just leave it. Not to brood over it. Not to breathe out threats. Not to determine to get even. But just to forgive. And what a witness that is when you can forgive and when you do forget. ...to the 19th chapter of Matthew. As Matthew records for us the departing of Jesus from the area of the Galilee. Now, most of the ministry of Christ was centered around the Sea of Galilee. He would go to Jerusalem for the feast days according to the law. But the majority of his ministry was centered around the Galilee region. But he is leaving now the Galilee for the last time until after his resurrection when he meets his disciples there. He is on his way to Jerusalem to the cross. And so Matthew tells us that when he had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and he came to the coast of Judea beyond Jordan, an area known as Perea, on the other side of the Jordan River. And uh, leaving now uh, this area of the Galilee. There are tensions that are built up. As we have mentioned as we were coming through, Herod has uh, heard of Jesus and uh, things are not well there. This tension is building among the Pharisees. And so he's sort of moving outside of the area to the other side of the Jordan River for a time. But he continues to minister to the multitudes. And so we notice great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. His ministry of healing continued. Now in the 19th chapter we find Jesus as he first of all ministers to the multitudes Then we find him being challenged by the Pharisees. And then we see him as he blesses the little children. And then we see him dealing with the rich young ruler. And finally, with the disciples, his words of comfort and hope for the future. So, verse 3. It's important to note that the Pharisees came to Jesus with the intention of trapping him. They intend to create a controversy. They intend to split the opinion of the people concerning Jesus. And so the question they ask is a lead question The purpose is to entrap Jesus and to bring criticism against him. So the Pharisees also came. Now, there were multitudes coming to be healed. But with them came the Pharisees. And they were tempting him and saying, Is it lawful... For a man to put away his wife For every cause They are challenging Jesus on the subject of divorce Now There was in the law The provision for divorce It was rather ambiguous If a man's wife no longer found favor in his eyes, and he found some uncleanness in her. Let him give her a writing of divorce, it said. There was no provision for a woman to divorce her husband, but there was this provision for a husband to divorce his wife. But what in the world does it mean she found No longer favor in his eyes But there was some uncleanness in her That was the issue The interpreting of that phrase Now there were two major schools of thought One led by a rabbi by the name of Shammai And Shammai took a very narrow position on this He said the uncleanness was adultery and that that was the only legal grounds for a man to put away his wife or divorce his wife was that of adultery. Incidentally, according to Josephus, there were two causes that were demanding and were Divorce was compulsory, and the one was adultery. I forget the other but uh, they they would say that divorce was compulsory. now, there was another rabbi by the name of Halel that took an extremely liberal view of she found no longer favor in his eyes and he found some uncleanness in her. And he interpreted that as meaning anything by which she displeased him. Maybe not fixing his meals to his satisfaction. And he took a very liberal position on divorce. And so the Jewish people were sort of divided between the teachings of the Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. And uh, so they are seeking to draw Jesus into this controversy. The question is, can a man put away his wife for any cause? According to Hillel, yes. According to Shammai, no. So, They're trying to put Jesus into the controversy because they know that when people are polarized on an issue, that's the easiest way to divide people. How Satan uses that so often in the church. A divisive tactic of Satan is to polarize people on issues and it's easy to create division. Uh, With the Jews, there was... The polarizing between the Pharisees and the Sadducees over the subject of spirits, angels, and resurrection. The Pharisees believed in all, but the Sadducees believed in none of it. And thus, if you wanted to create a division in a crowd, all you had to do is bring up the subject of resurrection or spirits and you've divided, you've got a big argument going between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Paul recognized this, and when he was brought before uh, the council, knowing that they were divided between Pharisees and Sadducees, Paul said, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, and for this cause I've been arrested, and I stand here before you. Well, it started an uproar. The Sadducees and the Pharisees began to argue and yell at each other over the issue, and Paul sort of just sat down and let them go at it. <laughs> Satan so often uses these divisive tactics by just polarizing people in positions and then bringing up the issue, and here we are dividing the church again. You know. Well, I don't like it. Well, I like it. Well, I don't. I like it. You know, polarized. The people were polarized on the issue. They knew if they could draw Jesus into it, immediately, no matter which side he took, he's going to lose the support of half the people. So Jesus answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now notice that Jesus goes back even before the law. In the law, it said, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But Jesus goes back before the law, in the beginning, God's original intent, God's original purpose, God's divine ideal is that marriage is for life. That is God's divine ideal. That when you make that commitment, when you take those vows, that it is a lifetime commitment. And it takes a lifetime of working out the differences. But you see, God intended that marriage be a process of completion. Um, Plato, I think it was, who said that when God made man, he cut him in half. And so there were two. But a person could not be a whole person until they found their ever other half. There were two halves walking around. And the ideal is to find the other half and thus you become complete. And so the purpose of marriage was complementary that you might become a complete person through marriage. And that is God intended, that marriage be a completion, that the two become one. And so Jesus goes back to the original principle of God in the creating of man. In the beginning, he made them male and female. And he said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more two, but they are one. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So Jesus took a very strict and narrow view concerning divorce. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Now, this is exactly what they were hoping Jesus would say they sought to close the trap on him. And so they answered and said unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Now you see, everybody recognized that God gave the law through Moses. That was a given. There was no question in their minds that God spoke to Moses the law for the people. And the Torah was recognized as God's word. Now they have Jesus making a declaration that seems to be in conflict with the Mosaic law. And if Jesus is saying something that is in conflict with the Mosaic law, then how can he claim to be God? Because we know that God spoke through Moses and gave the law. Now if Jesus is saying something that is contradictory to that, then we can point out that Jesus cannot truly be of God. And so how is it that they close the trap? You are in conflict with God's word through Moses. But Jesus answered, he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, allowed you to put away your wives, but, and again going back from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus is going to the divine ideal. In marriage, the two become one. It's a lifetime commitment. But because of the hardness of the hearts and the inability of people to come to God's divine ideal, God made provision through the law of Moses for a man to then divorce his wife. But that was because of the hardness of the hearts of the people their failure to come to God's divine ideal. It is God more or less accommodating the weakness of man. It isn't really the divine purpose and plan and the best, but it is a provision that God made when people, because of the hardness of their hearts, can't achieve or attain to God's best. And then Jesus went on to say, And I say to you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication or adultery, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. So, Jesus is very strong, very firm in his teaching concerning divorce. But again, acknowledging that God made provision for people whose hearts are hardened and cannot and will not come to God's divine ideal. So that. Divorce and remarriage is not an unpardonable sin. It is a failure to rise to the divine ideal. His disciples said unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it's better not to marry. Man, if you've got to stick with her the rest of your life, better not to marry, you know. (laughs) But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying. There are those whose hearts are hardened. They can't receive this. Only those to whom it is given. And then he introduces the subject of eunuchs. For there are some eunuchs, they're talking about better not to marry, and there are some who are eunuchs uh, which were born with that physical Deformity from their mother's womb. There are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs by men. Now, this was a common practice in the Eastern culture. Those men who had charge of the harems, of the potentates, were castrated. As well as the Priest in the temple of Diana of the Ephesians. And then there are some which are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Uh, hmm. Origen, one of the early church fathers, in reading this passage of Scripture, castrated himself. And uh, later on realized that he had made a wrong interpretation of it. (laughs) But it was too late. And then there were brought to him little children that he should put his hands on them and pray. The mothers wanted Jesus to bless their little children, to lay his hands on them and pray for them. And the disciples rebuked them. Now, the disciples felt that they were doing the right thing. Jesus was under a lot of pressure at this point. He had been talking to them about his death. They knew that trouble awaited him in Jerusalem. They knew the tension that was existing over Jesus throughout the country. And thus, they thought that they were protecting Jesus by telling the mothers, you know, don't bother him with your babies. He's too busy for that, and he's too involved with other things. But Jesus said, allow the little children and forbid them not to come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he departed from there. I love it that Jesus is always touchable Never too busy, never too pressured Even to take time with little children How far that is from some of these important people That we see on television today Who sort of isolate and insulate themselves And become untouchable And behold, one came and said unto him, Good Master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. This man had a consciousness that life must be more than what he had yet experienced. Aware of an emptiness. There was that lack of fulfillment. He saw in Jesus a quality of life that was higher. He desired it. And he was looking for some good thing that he might do in order to earn this extraordinary life, eternal life, this age-abiding life. It's interesting how that so many people are endeavoring by good works to be saved. But by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, and not of works lest any man should boast. And yet there are always those who are endeavoring by their good works to be acceptable by God. But in reality, our good works are like filthy rags in God's sight. And by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And though throughout the Bible the justification by faith is declared, proclaimed, illustrated, emphasized, it seems like man is just an inveterate religionist who feels that by good works and good efforts he can be accepted by God. All of the religious systems of man have an emphasis upon the good works and proscribed works for those that would enter into the kingdom of heaven. But in Christianity, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. And our works avail nothing as far as our salvation is concerned. And thus he was making the common mistake that so many people make, feeling that somehow he could earn his salvation by some good work. What good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? Now, I think that the reason why we are so attracted by good works is we love to boast and if we could be saved by good works, then think of how we could boast about that. If if God would say, well, you've got to read so many chapters and you've got to pray so many hours and you've got to lead so many people to Jesus and you gotta do and if we could keep all of this list, and then we could say, hey, look, I've got gold stars all over.
1: We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Matthew in our next broadcast. As Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on salvation apart from works, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Matthew 18 through 19 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673.
2: Father, we come tonight looking at the injunctions in these passages, looking at the teaching in these passages. And Lord, help us that we might become as a little child simple in our faith and in our trust. And Lord, may we have a concern for those little ones that trust in you. May we encourage them. May we love them. May we teach them. May they be brought by us to a fuller understanding of your love for them. And Lord, help us that we would not be guilty of causing offenses to your name or to the kingdom of God. Help us, Lord, to walk circumspectly. May we not offend those little ones that have come to trust in you because of certain liberties that we feel we have the freedom to exercise. But may we live by the higher law of love, and walk in love even towards the weaker brethren. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you for the power that you've entrusted into our hands. And now, Lord, make it complete. Give to us the capacity to forgive fully, just like you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name we pray.
1: This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California.
0: Through the course of the years, you, our radio listeners, have provided us with valuable feedback as to what has impacted you the most, or what has moved you spiritually in your walk with God. So it's with great pleasure that The Word for Today is pleased to offer you a collection of all-time favorites entitled Pastor Chuck Smith's Most Requested Bible Studies. These messages were selected from thousands of studies that were recorded live at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa over the past 40 years. They represent the very best Bible studies by Pastor Chuck Smith. Every message is dynamic and filled with rich insights as Pastor Chuck expounds upon relevant issues on a variety of topics related to the Christian faith. This series will strengthen and inspire you to diligently study the Word of God and apply it to your life. You can order a copy of Pastor Chuck's most requested Bible studies available on MP3 by calling The Word for Today at 1-800-272-9673 or visit us online at thewordfortoday.org.